Podcast on the Whitechapel Murders. This is episode 10. He is not dead, but liveth. The Thames Torso Murders. I'm Jonathan Mangus, coming to you from Topeka, Kansas in the USA. Joining me today, as always, is Howard Brown in Philadelphia, Mike Covell in Hull in the UK, Robert McLaughlin is in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and our special guest joining us today from, where are you from, Deborah? Huddersfield in Yorkshire. From Yorkshire in the United Kingdom, Deborah Arif. She's a researcher and writer and uh, expert on the Thames Torso Murders. Hi, Deborah. Thanks for being our guest today. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for having me on. Um, first off, Deb, I was wanting to ask you um, how you became interested in the Jack the Ripper case and what led you to... Um, focus on the Thames Torso murders? Well, I think about, I came about through the normal boring route of uh, reading Stephen Knight. I know it's not... Uh, I think it was in the 90s when I, I first picked up the book. It was a bit later than it actually came out. And uh, I was just hooked on it. From then on, I just read everything I could. But it wasn't until about five years ago that I started seriously doing any research or looking at anything that wasn't uh, suspect based and then through that I uh, happened to come across a book called A System of Legal Medicine which a lot of people already know about but at the time it wasn't as widely known as it is now and I found the five, the four cases, torso cases uh, the notes from those by Dr Bond and Dr Hebert, uh, they're full autopsies and was just interested and wanted to know more about them. Um, when you were um, interested in suspect-based ripperology, which suspect did you lean towards, or if you if you had a preference? I, d- I just read any any that was suspect-based. I didn't realise at the time that there were actual factual books about Jack the Ripper, and it wasn't until I got into case book that I realised that. Mm-hmm. Um, now we know that the. Um, the Thames Torso Murders, when, when they're one of, they're, they're not a very uh, broadly studied uh, series of, of murders like the Jack the Ripper crimes are. There's not very many books written about them. And books on Jack the Ripper, if they mention the, the Torso Murders at all, um, kind of skim over them. Um, and we, we do know that... Uh, from the 1870s onward up to um, even up to 1900, um, there were torsos deposited and body parts deposited um, in, in and around London and, and in the Thames itself. Could you give us a chronology of some of the main um, discoveries of bodies in, in, the, in the area? 
Well, outside of the four that were actually linked and had anything, to, well, the Pinching Street torso technically hasn't got anything to do with the Thames, but because of the um, autopsy and the doctor's reports, it was actually linked to the three. But before that, um, there has been a few uh, in the Thames, but they were in the 70s, and one of them was um, a woman called uh, Kate Webster was actually caught and convicted uh, of, a of a torso murder. Uh, there was another one in the 70s that was never caught. That's the, that, that was the original Thames mystery. Um, and then there seems to be a big gap. There are other torso murders, but not in the Thames area. And then in 1887, you get the Rain and Torso, which was the first of the four that were sort of classed as a series. And then you get one in 1888 that was... Uh, the Whitehall torso, which was part of it found in, in Whitehall, uh, near the Thames embankment, and part of it found in the Thames at Pimlico. And then you get in um, 1889, you have two torso murders. There's the Elizabeth Jackson murder, which was in the June of 89. And then you've got the Finchin Street torso, which was in September of 89. And then there's another sort of big gap, and you get the ones in the 1900s. And, and plus you get other murders like carpet bag type murders where um, the definite disposal ones are their men or do you know what I mean and there are also two in 1884 that occurred in um, uh, Fitzroy Place uh, two in the same area but they had nothing to do with the Thames plus one of those the four that I concentrate on the 1887 to 1889 were linked for specific reasons and that's the mode of disarticulation of the bodies and the two 1884 cases one of them was done with a hatchet and had no similarities at all to any of these and I think that's why these four with them happening at the time of Jack the Ripper are quite important um, Right and um, you mentioned Elizabeth Jackson's case mm -hmm. now um the uh, the Whitehall m murder was it not um, uh, was attempted to be linked to a woman named Lydia Hart. Uh, that's the Pinchin Street. Topic. That's the Pinchin Street one, and th but yeah. that was never that was never proven, right? No, there was no actual name linked to the Whitehall Hall So that's one of the ones that didn't actually get linked to anybody. Okay. Um, and we'll we'll uh, discuss some of these as we go along. Um, anyone else? Uh, who has the next question for Deborah? Um, uh, Debs, it's, uh, it's Robert here in uh, Edmonton. I just want to ask you about uh, uh, the first case in Raynham in 1887. Uh, Dr. Calloway, who uh, was the first person to examine the body, uh, he, sa he stated that someone skilled in surgery was responsible for uh, uh, cutting off or removing the limbs. And uh, and I was wondering, like, you know, is is this is um, the skill displayed in this? Was there a consensus of that? Like, unlike the Ripper case, where there's a, a big uh, discussion over what kind of skill the Ripper did possess, whether anatomical or surgical. But it, but it seems that um, uh, the torso cases from '87 to '89 seem to contain uh, some skill. Could could you discuss that a bit? Yeah, um, uh, 
Dr. Galloway, I've got Galloway, it may be Calloway actually, um, and Dr. Kempster was involved in the first torso find as well at Raynham. But Dr. Bond was also brought into that case too, to give his opinion after the other doctors had looked at the, um, the skills aspect and things like that. And I think all of the doctors um, came to the conclusion that some sort of skill had been involved, but although one of them did say medical skill, Dr. Bond was, was uh, precise in saying that it, it wasn't the skill of a surgeon or doctor that was shown, but that of a butcher or somebody accustomed to cutting up animals. And um, they all agreed that some a, a very sharp knife was used and that all the joints, the, around the arms and the legs, things like that, um, had been made a series of precise cuts, clean cuts, and then uh, the joints had been opened and disarticulated by someone who knew exactly where the joints were, how to get to them, and was used to doing it. And they actually said that uh, a doctor wouldn't know, wouldn't be able to perform this because he didn't do it daily, whereas butchers, archers, hunters, things like that, were used to doing things like that on a daily basis. And that was the first one. Uh, but that link goes through the whole four of them. What about um, in the cases where um, the victims had organs removed or in the case of Elizabeth Jackson, her fetus was removed from the uterus? Um, did, was was there their opinion there that, that it showed no surgical skill also? Um, if you go back to Rain, you see, with, with the nature of them being torso murders, uh, any part where you're cutting through the body, organs are going to come out and when you dispose of the body you'll probably get lost won't they? Now it's a bit vague sometimes sometimes it says um, in in different ones sometimes it'll say organs the organs were removed uh, and sometimes it'll say the organs were missing so it's not you're not able to tell whether they thought the organs had actually been cut out and removed or whether they're just being like if you cut someone across the middle something's going to fall out but the first one, the rain and torso. I'm just find that one. Right. Deb, this yeah? is Hal Brown. This is Hal Brown. Hi. I got a hi. How are you, dear? Um, we know that Dr. Bond was involved with the torso murder. Um, were there any police officials who worked on the Whitechapel murders and the Thames torso murders at any time? Um, they were all dealt with, uh, first of all, at a regional level, like regional inquirers. So if a, part, a body part was found, the thing with the torso was they were found in different parts, like one body could be found in a 20-mile stretch of the river. So there'd be like parts in Battersea, parts in Wapping, like the Elizabeth Jackson case. Uh, she had, um, first of all, an inquest was done on two parts of her body at um, Wapping. And then later, when other parts turned up, like in Battersea Park, things like that, they had an inquest at Battersea. They had, like, two de separate inquests on the same body. She's even got two death certificates for two areas. And so um, different police force, different police divisions became involved, like you've got the Thames Police dealing with it. And then the Battersea bit, you've got the Battersea Police making local inquiries. But then Scotland Yard were involved as well. So you have got some sort of crossover. But none of the people, the major, like, because you've got, um, let's see who the image is. 
Although, just to expand on that, like in, in Pynchon Street, Howard, uh, we do have some of the same people that were involved in the Ripper investigation because for Pynchon Street, we had Inspector yeah, well, like Reed. In White Chapel, yeah. Was there. Yeah, exactly, and which yeah, is a bit different. And, and of course, Inspector Moore. Yeah. But we've also got, like, um, um, Regan of the Thames Police was involved in um, searching um, um, Rivercraft after the Pynchon Street murder because, because of the cattle boat thing, right? And they did go into that a lot and looking around. And you've got Inspector Moore, who was also involved in Pynchon Street, uh, but he was also involved in looking for Elizabeth Jackson's, um, the person she lived with uh, before her death, and that was John Fairclough. He was involved in searching, going around searching the country for him and finding out where exactly he'd been and testing out his alibi. And then and, yeah, and, and just to further to add to that, uh, Faircloth, uh, Elizabeth Jackson's boyfriend, was uh, cleared because, uh, you know, Moore went around with a photograph to the places where Faircloth had been looking for work, and uh, he did have an alibi. He was outside of London looking for work at the time. Yeah, I'm not being able to get back. You had mentioned um, the uh, two separate inquests held on Elizabeth Jackson, and um, correct me if I'm wrong, but they were unsure of whether there was enough of a body um, at the first uh, inquest to even hold an inquest. Um, do, you, do you know if if a certain amount of, a, at this time we're talking about, a certain amount of a body had to be present in order to have an inquest? Or I think they were unsure about that. I think that was what, what they were debating about, whether they had enough of a body to say it was a dead body. Because at that time they had a thigh and they had... Um, uh, a parcel that contained two flaps of skin, a uterus, and a placenta, and that was it. So they didn't really have anything, although it's obvious it was a body. They didn't. They couldn't connect it at that time, and they couldn't say it was a body. But then, as more parts came together, they had a, uh, two more inquests after that, and in the end, they had an inquest, uh, and Elizabeth was named. Uh, a burial order was given out, and she had an inquest under her own name as a murdered person. And um, as far as her uh, the, the disposal site, um, you were yeah. saying that um, she uh, that you had diff- uh, the body parts were. I'm not I'm not terribly familiar with the the layout that we're talking about here, but you you you, you seem to say that different body parts were found at different locations, like as if maybe that they were dumped in, at different spots. Or, or do you believe that because there, there was that one parcel that was found 200 yards from the shore of the Thames uh, at Battersea, um, where it seemed to be uh, either no attempt was made to actually throw that one into the river or it was dropped or something like that? Do you believe that there was just like one place um, at, on the Thames where he could have uh, disposed of all of the body parts? Um, the, the police did think, um, they, they did inquiries and they did think, and they'd been told by um, people used to have been on the tent and everything, that the body had probably been dumped from one area, which was probably around the Battersea area, off a bridge there, and had, uh, the lighter part have it floated down. The, um, the first two parts that were found, the thigh was found at Battersea on the same day, and, and, and within half an hour of the... Um, uterus and the skin parcel being found at Harsley Down, 
which is just opposite St Catherine's Docks. And if you know, if you go from St Catherine's Docks, you're in St George in the East and then Whitechapel. So it was just across the water from Whitechapel there where the first parts of the body turned up, but also one at Battersea. So although they thought they had been thrown in at the same time and those parts at Horsley Down turning up because they were lighter and had travelled faster. Okay. Um, and, and, um, and she's also the, one, the, the victim that her, her um, remains were s- s- discovered uh, what they assumed would be very shortly at, within 24 hours after her murder. Yeah. Whereas the other um, Tim's torso victims, um, months um, seemingly went by before some of those remains were discovered. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. <coughs> In the Whitehall case, what, did they assume that um, that um, the part that they found at, at the um, construction of New Scotland Yard maybe ha- w- could have been there for a few months? Yeah, the Whitehall torso. When the uh, uh, Dr. Bond theory was that, had, although the workman that worked there said it actually had, had, hadn't, he hadn't been there two or three days before, it was found on a Monday morning and the works had been shut up over the weekend and when they came in, they found it and they swore that it wasn't there. But it was a really dark vault and even the police searching during the daytime had to use lanterns when they were actually searching in there to find any more body parts. And they did miss the body part that was there had been there for two weeks. They were guarding the entrance to the vault so no one could have got in and another part turned up, which was the leg, two weeks later, a couple of yards away from where the torso had been. The torso was leaning against a wall. It was parceled up, but it was really badly um, decomposed and there was staining on the wall where it had been leaning against it and decomposing. Um, so they, they put that... They, estimated that it had been there about two months and that the murder had actually occurred at the end of August and that the torso had been there all the time and they'd just not seen it because the vault was actually also full of rubbish and rubble and piles of dirt and everything so it would have been hard to miss it was there from there and uh, Deb uh, oh go ahead Mike um, do you think that the, the white all torso has anything to do with the parts of human remains that were found at the train station um, in Guildford um, Ulanish <laughs> yeah the, the uh, there was a brown paper parcel um, and they found a, a, a leg um, from the knee down to the ankle um, and that was August the 24th and they obviously got in touch with uh, the the police in London um, and Dr Bond and, and Dr Hibbard went down there to, to have a look at the remains do you think there's any link between the two? Well they did actually find out that it was, it was a bear's leg it had been boiled oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it had been boiled so it was hard to tell they knew it was flesh and that's about all they could tell until they actually, but there was a story behind it, I don't have it at the moment but there was a story about where it actually came from and, and, and what it was you said it was a bear turned out to be a bear's leg yeah um now but in this case um there was um an arm found in mid-september correct and then that's uh, right and then later on another another arm was found by the uh, lambeth school for the blind or something i think the blind school arm was found first and then not long after the one in uh in the thames near ebridge which is the pimlico 
um, and it's just opposite uh, the opposite side of the water to where uh, one part of Elizabeth Jackson's body was found, almost opposite there. Um, that arm, they fitted that perfectly. They, they, they could tell by the cuts and everything and the way that the joint fitted in into the torso and everything. But the other arm found at the blind school was never mentioned again, never comes into it. It's not in the autopsy reports, so they must have decided that wasn't one. So there's a spare arm there. And also and, in the uh, 1887 case, when they were looking at the Raynham torso, another thigh did actually turn up, but they never found any more body parts to go with that one. Um, and I was just going to ask about uh, the leg that was found uh, in the vault with the torso. It was found, I believe, a couple of weeks later um, by, yeah. a sniffing dog, it, uh, by a sniffing dog. Is that correct? That they brought That's a right. dog in to search? Which, yeah. which I find ki kind of ironic because, uh, uh, you know, of all the, what they went through, uh, you know, with Barnaby and Burgo and the, the trials for the Jack the Ripper and, the, and thinking about using the dogs for that. And I found it interesting that they used a dog for the Whitehall case. Yeah, because the bloodhounds, um, they are good at, uh, it wasn't actually a bloodhound, it was Pittsburgh and Terrier that they used, but they also brought in the bloodhounds. Afterwards, the ones that have been on, been tried out in Hyde Park, and they brought them from the King Street Police Station. Um, but that day didn't make any discoveries. But it was uh, a Mr. Waring who owned the Spitzberg Terrier, and he voluntarily came and asked for access to the vault so that he could uh, try the dog out to see if it could find any more remains. And it did. It turned up the leg, which was buried under a pile of rubble uh, that had been dug out where they were digging a drain about 10 weeks before. Um, which may also indicate that uh, the torso parcel was actually there a length of time. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, just to follow up a bit more on uh, the Whitehall torso, I wanted to get your opinion because um, uh, the site was uh, surrounded by a, an 8-foot uh, fence I, I read and that it would be very difficult for one man to get a torso over that fence because I believe they had a night watchman also on the on site. And I've, I just wanted to get your views on that, like if you'd read about uh, you know people being seen on site or if there were any suspicious characters or you know anything like that, how, how the body actually could have been uh, Yeah, they didn't have the actually have a night watchman. They said at one time they did, but um, they recently changed it so there was no night watchman. Uh, only at certain times when if there was anything valuable on the premises but because there was nothing happening and it was just like basically doing foundations and there wasn't much in the way of equipment or anything like that they didn't actually have a night watchman but they did have locked gates and they had an 8 foot hoarding all the way around the works and outside part of it they didn't even, even have a, a proper walkway pavement or anything it was all bored uh, and great big drops there was a 40 foot drop at one side so anyone climbing over would have fallen 40 feet and, you know, they wouldn't have got found at all. So, so they, they actually thought that it was someone who had access to the works or who could take something in there during the day, like on a barrow, and no one would um, approach them or ask them what they were doing or anything, someone who was accustomed to being there. Um, somebody was actually seen, uh, somebody reported seeing someone uh, trying to get a parcel, uh, a package over the hardings and that was investigated and it was found to be um, some workmen uh, throwing, uh, getting a bag of sand throwing a bag of sand over there 
so nothing came of that. But there was no way in. It was a secure site. Yeah, Howard? I'm sorry. Uh, Deb, was there much coverage of these murders um, at the time in London and in the British papers? There was, was yeah. There? there was quite a bit, yeah. It usually came at the bottom. It was... It usually came because the Whitechapel. Um, you've got the Alice McKenzie happening at the same time. Uh, you've got the um, in '88. You've got the murders in '88 happening around the same time. So they didn't get as much home space, but they did usually stick them on the end, and they had their own uh, write-ups as well. But they didn't get as much press, but they did get quite a bit. Yeah. Were were any rewards offered, and were any people ever arrested or detained un, under suspicion of complicity? No, you ne- no, no one's ever mentioned of being arrested. Um, no. And this no, is a question. And uh, this is a question for both Deb and and for you as well, Mike. Um, uh, when covering the press. Um, are there also because we we know about the Ripper letters, but are, are there letters from people uh, claiming to know the torso murder or confessing to the torso murders that appeared in the press? Do we? I've gone through the four whole newspapers um, that were out during the period of eighteen eighty eight, and I've got maybe thirty between thirty and forty articles um, on the torso um, murders, and I've not seen a letter. Um, I've not seen anyone write to the police. I've seen things people come forward and say, we think we know who the victim might be, and we think we might have seen something, but upon further investigation, it's usually ruled out. Right. Yeah, uh, I agree. I've never seen any letters from anybody. Or There were letters uh, a trip, uh, written by, quote-unquote, Jack the Ripper, though, that did make reference to the torso yeah, the, murders. The one yes, um, I was going to, uh, uh, oh, oh, about, you were talking about if anyone was ever arrested or anything like that. Now, with the uh, Pension Street Torso case, um, the, uh, the, there was eyewitness, uh, eyewitness who claimed to have seen a soldier um, in the area acting suspiciously. Um, so, didn't I think they were looking around for, like... Um, uh, trying to trace a, uh, an eyewitness uh, report of a soldier. Isn't that right, Deb? I've not heard of that one. I've heard of the Jewish tailor standing on the corner, but I've not heard of a soldier. Well, for the Elizabeth Jackson one, I know that um, there were two sailors uh, sleeping under an archway that were uh, detained. Um, they were intoxicated at the time, and they were investigated and, and questioned and released. Uh, they, they'd just been sleeping off a drunk... Uh, and in one of the archways adjacent in Pynchon Street. Right. That's, Not the yeah, Elizabeth as far as I know. Jackson one, but right, the Pynchon Street one. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, 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 right. Um, I had read somewhere that um, that a soldier, I think, I think maybe a soldier went up to someone and said, you know, there's been a horrible murder um, on Oh, the John Cleary story. Right, I guess, if that's it. I'm just going off the top of my head. There's been a horrible murder in Beckford Lane or something like that, and the other person identified a soldier being that person. But um, any, Anywho, um, back to Whitehall, I wanted to make the point, and Debs uh, did say this, but I wanted to reiterate that the, uh, that the bloodhounds or the dogs called in to um, 
that ended up finding the leg in the Whitehall um, case was um, amateur detectives, not the police. Um, the police didn't utilize um, um, dogs in, in, in Whitehall. It was uh, citizenry or amateur detectives who discovered those, those pieces a couple weeks later. So um, as the police were having guard over the site, you know, they, um, it, was the, they, it wasn't the, the police who called it the, uh, the bloodhounds or whatever to find those body parts. They did eventually bring the bloodhounds in there. Um, the same dog that found the um, leg in the Whitehall case, was that they actually took it to Battersea Park after they found portions of Elizabeth Jackson's body there. Oh, really? Uh, to try and locate the head. And uh, he did do a bit of scratching around, and they looked promising for a while, but nothing ever came of it. They didn't find anything. Um, I had a que- I had a question about um, uh, the unidentified torsos. Like, we have Elizabeth Jackson, and the other three remained unidentified. Um, we know Elizabeth Jackson was uh, probably a prostitute, from what we gather. I, I was yeah. wondering if there, if there's anything about the um, other torsos and, and the limbs uh, found with it um, that could tell us anything about the social strata or social class of the victim in the other cases. Yeah, with the Pinching Street torso, uh, Dr. Phillips actually said that there was a strong possibility that it was um, the woman was a prostitute, and they definitely believe that she was the um, of the unfortunate class. Uh, just from the clothing she was wrapped in as well as anything else there. <coughs> um, they did, when they did uh, these autopsies, they were working from a set of rules of, that they had to follow. I know that, Robert, you've read a lot of these medical uh, legal books and you've probably seen the sort of things they had to do to follow. And there was quite a lot um, of things set out of how they could discover someone's identity. And it was things like looking for garter marks because... People of a certain class wore garters below the knee rather than above the knee. Um, and I think that applies in one of the cases where they did find actual garter marks below the knee. I'm not sure if it's the Whitehall one or not. I think it was the Raining one, actually. So they definitely thought she was of a lower class, too. There isn't any. Although the test did pick up on, um, it was in the. Which one was it there? I think Elizabeth Jackson's hands, although her nails were bitten down and weren't manicured or anything, she was, had really pale hands that didn't show any signs of hard work. So the, the doctors noticed that and the papers picked up on that and said it was a, a lady that um, she had genteel hands and um, that the clothing that had been found wrapped around the body uh, was a red herring uh, and probably to put someone off the scent and she was really a, a woman of a better class than... Um, and uh, speaking of uh, Elizabeth uh, Jackson's clothing, uh, it was her clothing that eventually identified her, was it not? It was her clothing, uh, yeah, and the fact that she was pregnant and um, the colouring of her hair, her skin colouring, and a scar on her wrist. But her clothing was labelled um, something other than her name, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, she'd actually bought them second-hand. Well, I think they were about £10, and they'd been bought by... Uh, when she went to Ipswich with John Fairclough, uh, and the actual owner was traced, and the person who had actually written the name, which was uh, Ellie Fisher, onto the waistband. 
uh, it was the father of the person who owned them, and she'd sold them on. And then eventually they'd been sold as rags, and Elizabeth had bought them to wear, and they were actually rags, and sold up as rags, which is quite sad they were. Um, Bear Clifford bought her a dress uh, while she was in Ipswich staying with him, which he identified. And then the coat she was wearing was identified by two people who she'd known for a long time, who were neighbours of her who'd known her when she was working in service and they'd taken pity on her found her in a she was homeless, wandering the streets and she'd been sleeping rough and she was pregnant and they'd taken pity on her and give her some money and give her a coat and that's what identified her right, and the parcels were um, were wrapped in the same material yeah. so yeah. it aided in, in them being able to decide that the, the body parts matched um, yeah. Now about her being pregnant, um, there's anywhere from six to eight months pregnant. From what I read, um, <coughs> there were. Um, this is pretty grisly topic. Um, there were. Uh, they discovered the uh, body of a newborn baby um, somewhere in v- the vicinity that they thought might be um, her child, and then. Uh, Horribly enough, they found a, a fetus floating in the Thames inside of a pickle jar mm-hmm. that they thought might be. Um, I don't think either of those uh, two were ever conclusively connected to her case. But um, the, first, well, the first child found was found near Ebury Bridge, and that was a newborn baby girl. But it was the press that linked that child to cost. Um, of the rumours that Elizabeth had actually given birth to a child, um, which weren't true. That's why they linked that, and that's why that one came up. But the other one was a five-month-old piece found in a jar. But the doctors couldn't say for definite whether it had been uh, connected to Elizabeth or not, because um, they decided that she was between six and seven months pregnant. And if you look at the measurements, because they give specific measurements for the size of a womb, uh, for the length of the room, which is measurements that doctors use nowadays to calculate. I don't know if you've all, um, I don't know if you know about this, but the measure thing, um, it's called height fundus. When you're pregnant, to see how many weeks along you might be. And um, the length of the room roughly corresponds to the weeks in pregnancy you are. And Elizabeth uh, works out about 26 centimetres, which means she's about 26 weeks pregnant. Out of Does that... Yeah, and I guess I mean, Howard, you're about four months along, buddy. <laughs> I thought you were going to keep that a secret. Uh, uh. No, it's quite interesting, actually. I didn't know that, Debs. That was... um, with um, Elizabeth Jackson's case, um, there, um, you know, it makes you wonder. I mean, you, with, with the Ripper murders... Um, you you have these victims um, kind of laid out where where they were died where we assume they they were killed where they stood, um, but with um, the Elizabeth Jackson case and the rest of the torso murders, you could assume that uh, obviously that these um, these women were murdered somewhere somewhere else and then. Um, and then cut up, and their body parts were de- uh, deposited. Um, with, with uh, <coughs> and that brings up um, 
with Elizabeth Jackson, the, the fact that her fetus was removed. Um, yeah. do you, do you think that these, um, in just your opinion, um, could have been, um, to, uh, try to hide her identity because um, people would speculate that the reason that the heads were removed of these victims is to make identification harder. Do you think possibly the removal of the fetus was another way of, for the murderer to attempt to uh, disguise the identity of the victim? Or The thing was that the fetus was removed. Um, two parts of skin were removed from her abdomen and the actual wound was cut out took part of the bladder away, took part of the um, um, other parts of it. It had actually been cut round, taken out, and then an incision had been made into the womb, and the fetus had been removed. But the cord had been cut, and the placenta and the cord were actually left with the womb and parceled up. So if they were taking away the fetus to disguise what was going on, it seems a bit odd that they left the other evidence there. Right. Hmm. Um, because it's obvious that it was someone pregnant if there's a placenta and a cord in there without taking away right. um, and then um, also we have um, uh, uh, so there's speculation that, that um, the, the dismemberment of the bodies um, um, w and was made in an attempt to um, hide the pieces um, whether, uh, uh, but then you have in in the um, Elizabeth Jackson case, um, body parts being thrown over the wall of, the, of Sir Percy Shelley's estate, um, which, and in the Whitehall murder, obviously you have the torso left, and and uh, at the construction side of New Scotland Yard. So this doesn't, to me, at least in those two cases, point to someone trying to necessarily hide the body parts. It's more like they were getting... Um, sending a message. Sending, yeah, intending it to be found, especially, in, I mean, in both cases. I mean, Sir Percy Shelley's the son of the author of Frankenstein, in which the mm -hmm. book, um, you know, is a... And so that, that was definitely... It seems like it, it couldn't have been a coincidence... Um, so what, what well, that could have been because I think actually there was quite a lot of bushes outside that house uh, quite high bushes and it had actually been thrown from the embankment and landed there so it might not have been intentional but the, and the, loca and the location is and the location is across from Battersea Park right I mean uh, on, on the other embankment uh, Shelley's home so, yeah. so that could make it coincidental. Yeah, but there, there, were, there were pieces of Elizabeth Jackson uh, in Battersea Park as well, which is a public park. So, they were, they were, she was left in a public place. Um, the White Altar. So, was it's not really a public place. There's no public access to see. So, um, maybe that one. Although it's Scotland Yard, and I can see how. I can see what you're getting at there, but it wasn't a public square. Uh, but Pynchon Street as well, I mean, that, it was the Ripper murders, there were extra police on, on duty, and someone nipped out, nipped into the arch, left the body, and was off. That and was by the same, yeah, and by the same token, in the Pynchon Street case, 
there's no residences overlooking the murder site. Uh, the, the torso could not be seen from any residence. Yeah. But there were people sleeping in the arches, so I, I think it's still a bit dodgy, but... Yeah. Deb, is yeah. there anything is there anything that you've discovered from studying the, um, the the Thames torso murders that could be linked to the Whitechapel murder investigation uh, uh, aside from the uh, aside from the pictures? <coughs> Sorry, I'm that's right. You all right? I'm fine. Yeah. The, the victim the victims that were found in the water. Is there anything that you've discovered that could be linked to them? Um, I don't think there's anything that particularly links them. No. Um, it's just that uh, a lot of people are under the impression that the torsos were um, whole torsos with no mutilations on them. When you talk about mutilations, people automatically assume you mean arms and legs being chopped off, and that doesn't count. It's not the same thing as in the um, white chapel murders. But actual um, some mutilations were carried out. Like um, if you look at Elizabeth Jackson, um, her abdomen was actually mutilated for whatever reason to like I keep saying this but if you uh, compare Elizabeth Jackson to Mary Kelly um, the um, flaps of from the abdomen um, containing uh, including the external organs of generation part of the butter it sounds exactly like Mary Kelly um, the way the neck was cut down to the bone the bone uh, the vertebrae had been knit in exactly the same place as Elizabeth and Dr. Phillips was asked to comment on whether there was any similarity between them. Uh, it's a bit confusing the way it's worded, like in um, a couple of things, he said um, the, uh, Pinchin, the Pinchin Street torso showed um, that the murderer had showed uh, more skill in disarticulating joints, but yet uh, we're told that it, it seems to imply that that was tried out on Mary Keller that they tried to disarticulate her joint and in some papers it's reported that uh, Philip says the severing of the legs uh, was dissimilar to the Pinchin Street torso so severing is trying to remove them but in other, other reports it says the cutting of the legs now Mary's legs were sliced down so I tend to think that that's what they actually meant and that papers misreported when they said severing. But it does make you wonder sometimes if there was more uh, disarticulation attempted than we're told about or we know about. And, uh, and uh, Deb, uh, for the, uh, the torso murders between 87 and 89 and the, the parts of the body they were covered, um, in, the, in the reports and uh, things you've read on it, is there any indication on the, the handedness of the killer, whether he was left or right-handed? Uh, I think we do get a report from this. I'll just try to find it here. Um, it says, I think it was a Pinchin Street one. Uh, I think it's Dr. Phillips that commented on it, but I might be wrong about that one. But they thought it was a right-handed killer. But they thought, um, because he'd worked from left to right, they thought he was a, a right-handed killer. But when he was working on the left side of the body, he'd work from right to left. And they commented on that. But that was the only one where they actually made a comment about the whether he was right or left-handed. In all four cases, 
um, they said a sharp knife was used and a fine tooth saw. The same weapon in all of them. Phillips even said in the Pinchin Street torso it was an eight inch long knife. And all four had exactly the same, the torso was cut up in the same way, in exactly the same way. And when uh, Dr. Bond, and, uh, Dr. Hebert made notes, and he'd been, uh, Dr. Bond had looked at the Raynham case, and Dr. Hebert was brought in on uh, the Whitehall case as well to make notes, and he comments um, that they were exactly the same. He was, he was really struck by the exactness of the mode of dismemberment. Now, yeah, is, oh, go I'm ahead, sorry. Howard. All right. Is there a great deal of distance between the actual locations of the bodies uh, for people from the United States or uh, Canada or around the world that may not be familiar with the landscape of London and Thames River? Were they separated um, by great distance? Uh, quite a fair distance, yes, actually. Um, like Chelsea is in the West End. Uh, and Bata, sorry, Batafair is towards the west, and that, but then you've got bits turning up at Raynham, uh, places like that. Um, you've got places turning up at Regent Canal, which is a bit further over, and places at Harford Down, which is like I said before, it's off St Catherine Docks, and it's not not that far away from Whitechapel. Um, but there is quite a spread, yeah. Okay. The now, thing, that, the thing that links them, be besides what the doctor said about them, the uh similarities in the way they've been cut up um, is the Thames, and that, apart from Tinchin Street, but that was only linked because of the modes it was cut up. But the other three are linked by the Thames, which is a big river. And that one, one of the uh, things that um, you wrote about in your dissertation on Elizabeth Jackson that um, to where the authorities uh, speculated that it could be the work of a horse slaughterer instead of a surgeon is that a handkerchief was shoved up the rectum of Elizabeth Jackson, which is apparently, and I, and I was kind of, um, I don't, I don't know anything about slaughtering animals, of course, but um, I, um, I yeah. was wondering if you could elaborate on that. Um, the mode of dismemberment, you thought, showed a, a butcher or horse slaughterer. The actual, um, um, plugging, I call it plugging. Um, we thought that meant it had something to do with marine knowledge, but in some papers it did say medical knowledge. Now I found out something today. I know there's been a lot of talk about abortion, and I was actually dead set against this for a long time. Um, in two of the cases of the torsos, it's definitely true that they couldn't have been pregnant. We've got one who's a bird who was said to be a virgin. And uh, she'd recently menstruated, so pregnancy in that case is definitely out. The Pinchy Street torso, she was, she, um, as far as they could ascertain, she, she wasn't pregnant. Uh, and they definitely looked for it. So if they couldn't see it, it, was, it wasn't a developed pregnancy. So it wouldn't have been obvious to the person, if you know what I mean. Uh, the Raynham torso, they couldn't tell because the actual uterus was missing, so they, they'd never know. And then with Elizabeth, um, without going into too much graphic detail, Victorian abortions were actually really horrific, and the women didn't die instantly from having an abortion. Um, midwives and doctors uh, trying to bring along a miscarriage, and for this they used poisons or instruments, and 
midwives through the whole array of other horrific instruments, porcupine quills, uh, meat skewers, things like that. Uh, I'm sure I don't have to say what they actually did with them. But their aim was to bring about a miscarriage. The term illegal operation makes it sound like some sort of operation has been done, but really it's the procedure. And these women who were victims of abortions who died afterwards usually went home or stayed in bed if the abortion had visited them, had a miscarriage or a stillborn child, as some called it. Uh, that would have been gotten rid of. And then the ones that died usually died like two, three days afterwards or sometimes two or three weeks afterwards of things like blood poisoning, peritonitis, infection by the way the procedure had been carried out or um, people were really badly injured by some of these the practices and I think um, the Whitechapel victim that closely resembles an abortion victim more than anyone else is Emma Smith. Now I'm not saying she was but if you can imagine a milder form of the injuries that were inflicted on her and her dying of peritonitis making her way home being taken to hospital and dying is usually what happened in abortion cases. So, with Elizabeth, the doctors had specifically looked for this because with a pregnant woman, it's it's an obvious motive, isn't it? Um, and they have a fairly extensive uh, list. Uh, they looked at the womb, they looked at the cervix, they looked at the vagina. There was no damage, no instruments had been used to bring about an abortion. We couldn't tell if poison had been used because part of the stomach was missing and the windpipe was missing, so they couldn't test the poison. But as far as they were concerned, no, there was no evidence that instruments had been used for an illegal operation. Now, going back to something that Jonathan mentioned earlier on about the plugging, which was a, a piece of linen about eight inches long, which they found inserted into Elizabeth's back passage. Now, that has been something that's been bothering me for a long time and I've tried to find out what would be the reason for that and I've had no success. I mean, it's not something you can Google without getting eye-watering results. And um, I, just today, about an hour before we're due to do the podcast, instead of looking up illegal abortion, I decided to look up legal abortion because abortion was legal in some cases in Victorian times. And I came across a book by... Um, Charles Tidy called uh, Legal Medicine. It's dated 1882 to 1884. And in there, it's instructions for doctors on how to perform a legal, uh, a legal abortion uh, to bring about a, a miscarriage. And one of the ways is inserting a plug into the rectum, like an enema effect, like reduce herbs or um, push some sort of liquid into the rectum and then plug it um, and use this in conjunction with other methods. So I'm a bit, I've changed my mind a little on the abortion thing, I think, with that. Wow. Um, that's that's quite fascinating. And um, I know there was I know. a lot there, a lot of outpouring. There's a lot there. there. That's, that's good. Um, no, I was just a. Uh, uh, thinking in general here, um, uh, just just going back to an earlier point, um, these, these these four murders that uh, took place 
the, the four torso murders from 87 to 89. Um, one, one of the things to me that when I, when I was looking at the case that seems to separate it from the earlier murders of the 1870s and uh, other murders from the early 1900s is that it, it seems in those cases that they actually recovered heads. And um, from these four murders, no heads were ever recovered. And um, I, I just wanted you to, you know, maybe you can speculate a bit. Um, if, if you think that, uh, uh, because, you, you know, he removed other parts as well, but you think he, uh, the torso murder was also potentially a trophy hunter or that he actually disposed of the heads, not in the Thames, but perhaps, you know, a bit more, uh, a bit more permanently? Um, I think the head really, most people associate associate it with removing it for identification. But it seems a bit odd with things like Elizabeth Jackson when you find that she was um, wrapped up in her own clothes. And, I mean, her, her ring had been forcibly removed from her finger, her wedding ring. It was a fake wedding ring when she was with John Fairclough because she was pregnant. And that had been removed. And they thought that had been done by the murderer. Now that could have been um, similar to Chapman or it could be for identification that was removed. Um, but her, she, her own clothing was used. Plus the name, although it wasn't her own name, it, it, it actually was traceable, and it was traced. So it seems to be odd that they'd go to the trouble of cutting off the head for identification, but yet leave all those clothes behind. As same with the removal of the fetus. If you're hiding evidence of pregnancy, why not hide all the evidence of pregnancy? It just right. seems odd that way. And, and, the fact that, and the fact that the head was removed, um, it, it also made it difficult for the doctors like Bond and Hibbert and others who investigated the case to determine a cause of death, correct? Yeah, because if they had died of a cutthroat or anything like that, once you chop the head off, um, you, there's no trace of it as that. But I think because in the Raynham case, the Raynham case, because uh, the white horse, sorry, because it was bloodless, but also, they actually thought that may have been caused by a cut throat the death. And also, in the Pynchon Street, there was some mention of it. Um, Phillips was a bit hesitant about saying it, but he was hinting that the throat had probably been cut, similar to the Whitechapel cases. And am I correct? Sorry. Go ahead, Robert. Am I, am I correct in assuming that, um, that uh, there were no injuries to the body? like the, you know, the main portions of the torsos that were recovered, that there was no significant injuries to those that would suggest an immediate cause of death? Like there were no stab marks or things like that that would indicate? No, no stab marks or anything like that. A lot of them had bruises on arms and legs, like finger mark bruises, but quite all four of them had bruises that had on their thighs or on their arm, upper arms. But nothing for a cause of death, no, no stabbing, anything like that. The torsos were essentially pristine then, correct, Eb? With the exception of the bruises that you just mentioned? In terms of um, a wound that would show um, how they died, yes. Uh, and the jury uh, in the, the first couple of cases returned verdicts of found dead and not yeah. murdered by persons unknown. Yeah, the first two did. Uh, that's probably why there was no investigation of the series, like the Whitechapel murders, well, because they happened in Whitechapel as well, 
investigated his theory, but these were never, because two were actually just found dead and not willful murder verdicts, um, they weren't linked to an investigation. And there are wounds um, or injuries or what, it, what you ever want to call them on the Pynchon Street torso mm-hmm. of that, um, uh, on, on her wrists, as as if you could, I don't know if they, they speculated of whether uh, she was at some time bound. Um, I think the wrist um, cuts they, they decided were caused when the thighs had been cut off because the arms were at the side. Whoever done it had nicked them time when trying to cut the thighs off. Okay. Uh, Mike and Hall? Yeah, I've got a question. Going back to. Um, the, the torso at, at Pimlico um, given that the police were dredging the river between the Steamboat Pier and the London Brighton and South Coast Railway Bridge is it possible that the torso was chucked into the river from a passing train which, which torso is this Mike this is the Pimlico um, I've got an article here that says the Thames police were engaged for several hours yesterday afternoon in dragging the river between Pimlico, Steamboat Pier and the London, Brighton and South Coast Railway Bridge, between which points the arm of the woman was found on Tuesday. This would have been part of the Whitehall? What? This was the... Found what day is it, Mike? Thursday, September the 13th, 1888, but I think this is from a weekly paper. This would have been the, one of the arms from the Whitehall torso, wasn't it? It's referring to the... The Pimlico, Pim, Pimlico. Yeah, yeah, it was found at Pimlico. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Yeah. Um, I'm not very good at geography, to tell you the truth, and I couldn't comment on that one at all. I don't, I, I don't really know. Now, was and, it? And someone had brought up. Um, a th- I think it was A. P. Wolf who had mentioned that um, the uh, boatmen were paid for um, bringing in bodies from the Thames. Um, and he suggested that maybe um, this is kind of far-fetched, but um, I, I don't know if you know anything about um, if um, boatmen were paid to uh, when they drug bodies out of the Thames, and and or if they were paid by the part, let's say. To um, you know, how how does that work? Piecework. <laughs> well, actually, anybody who found a body was paid for finding the body and appearing at the inquest. And I've got a little bit here to read out, actually. It's from the Elizabeth Jackson case. Now, she was towards the end of the, mer- of the torso murder. She was the third one, if there were theories. Um, and after that, the Simpson Street was found on dry land anyway. It had nothing to do with the tent. And then we don't really he- hear any more um, tent torso murders, although we have hundreds and hundreds of um, suicides, um, accidental deaths, where whole bodies are found in the tent. People took themselves in the Regent's Canal every day. There were hundreds of dead bodies in there, and they were recovered whole and stayed whole. And then, and then, um, but I'll just read you this out from the 1889 case. Uh, Coroner Braxton hits the inquest, addressing the witness witnesses from 20 in number who'd been instrumental in finding the remains and conveying them to the different mortuaries said that the Act of Parliament allowing him to pay only five shillings for the recovery of a dead body, and he felt it would be ludicrous to offer them so small a sum to divide between them. He did not feel disposed to increase that amount by a payment out of, out of his own pocket, 
but seeing the very unpleasant nature of the duties which the witnesses in question had so properly performed, he should certainly ask the London County Council to grant him permission to remunerate each witness for what he had done. And that was a specialty for that case. Um, do you have any uh, theories um, that that w- your gut tells you about um, what kind of person may have been responsible for these murders? I've, uh, no. As far as a, does it lean towards a butcher, in your opinion, or someone with more surgical skill, or a medical student, or an abortionist? Well, it, 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 Elizabeth Jackson said, well, I was against an abortionist, but after what I said before, now, if these four were linked, we've got two who definitely weren't pregnant. We've got Elizabeth, who could have been abortion. She could have been, actually, um, it could have been other reasons that she was using a, um, if she was using it, using it as an enema, there could be other reasons she could have had constipation or anything, but it seems odd that there is a link there. But um, if Elizabeth Jackson has had an abortion, and she was linked to the other four by the means of the... They all had fine two swords used on sharp, um, sharp, very sharp knife, it says. Um, if she was a victim of an abortionist uh, and not a butcher, and the other three were cut up in exactly the same way, then it's got to be a doctor in the other, other three cases as well. Then. Um, so, which is what, um, right at the beginning in the... Um, the Raynham case with Dr. Calloway that Robert mentioned that he thought the um, person who the murderer had surgical skill while removing the arm. And I, I would and I would like to answer that question as well, Jonathan, because sure. uh, um, you know I've been thinking about it for a while now myself. And you know the torso murder because none of you know all the bodies were dumped or pieces were dumped. Uh, the murderer needed a private location to dismember the body. He also needed one where the smell of decomposition would not be questioned. And he also needed a way to transport the larger torso sections um, for disposal. So, you know, I think this suggests at least somebody with a a middle-class background. You know, it doesn't suggest... Or working class. It doesn't suggest an unfortunate or somebody... You know, living in the lodging houses or DOS houses, it, it just doesn't, I think, lean to that direction, in my opinion. Right. No. And, a ve- and a vehicle. Yeah, and a vehicle, too, right, Robert? Well, yeah, something is, you, you can't carry a heavy torso piece uh, by yourself. And um, Howard and I were talking earlier about how maybe um, this, the, uh, the doctors themselves just wanted to shy away from suggesting that the uh, murderer had any uh, medical skill um, as a part of class bias or, um, you know, it couldn't be one of us type of thing that, that did that you also see affect the Jack the Ripper case. Um, but I agree that, um, you know, it makes you wonder how um, the women, um, if he did have this... Uh, uh, his own private dwelling, um, then, you know, uh, a good possibility is that the women came to him. Um, um, how would it, how would if he have abducted them off the street or, you know, I mean, it kind of makes you think that, um, that it could have been a situation where they entered his, uh, 
their place of death alive, you know, it was a private residence. Or office. Right. And, uh, and further to that, I'd sort of like to ask all of you, because uh, um, in the Jack the Ripper case, of course, we have many theories, and a lot of these theories involve uh, two killers. Uh, we, we had it uh, on the show last week with Stan Russo, who, who brings forth, uh, you know, Walter Sickert and uh, J.K. Stephen as a, as a murder duo for the Ripper uh, killings. And I was wondering what all of you think about the possibility of uh, two people working together for these uh, torso murders from 87 to 89. Uh, does anybody have any thoughts on that? Deborah. I mean, something I've not really thought of, to tell you the truth. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I would yeah, think it would be that it was something to do with abortion. You could have a doctor or a midnight wife working together or something like that. But apart from that, I, I really don't know. I don't have any thoughts on that. To me, I would put... Um, um, before a serial killer from, I would have put a personal... Somebody personally known. And, and for Elizabeth Jackson, I would have... Um, well, the only thing that got me thinking about that is is um, is, is the Whitehall uh, murder. Uh, the, the fact that it would yeah. be difficult for one person to, you know, get a body over the fence and deep down into the the basement vaults of the New Scotland Yard, um, just just by one person, even if they had a barrow or something, it just seems problematic. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm not saying two people were responsible. It's just, you yeah, know, so it, would make, it would make disposal easier. I don't know, Debs. Yeah. We also thought it could have been um, brought in during the day by an actual workman, someone who had access to the site legitimately. And Elizabeth Johnson was seen um, 24 hours before her death. Um, she was picked up a man outside the um, hospital tavern in Chelsea, who had the appearance of a navvy, which is a workman. So. And wasn't, um, now it may not have been Elizabeth Jackson's case, but um, I had read somewhere about um, how one of the supposed victims, um, something about a purse snatching, or she was threatened um, with death unless she handed over her purse by an individual down there? By the river, do you know anything about that, Debs? I think I think all sorts of things like that. And I think it's a dangerous place to be, especially at night. And um, and also, I wanted to say back to Robert's question about the tandem um, murder. Um, in in Elizabeth Jackson's case, you do have one major piece that didn't make it to the river. Um, uh, even though I I think that maybe it was intended to go into the Thames, for some reason um, it just didn't make it that far so um that in my opinion would point to it being one person who just had too many parcels to handle but um actually two would seem like one at one side of the river one on a bridge one at one side of the river walking down the embankment disposing of the body it seems quite sensible because imagine all the different parcels trying to throw them off the bridge together I'm sure somebody would have seen it. Oh, and um, we're just over an hour. Um, Mike Covell, do you have any more questions? Yeah, just one final one. 
Um, given that the bodies were cut up um, in a brutal manner that there was, why do you think there's not as much interest in the Torso murders as there is in the Ripper case? <laughs> For anybody, anybody can answer that. Oh, Deborah. Um, I just think that um, because they're unidentified, because there's no witnesses, apart from Elizabeth Jackson the only one that's identified, people did come forward with stories about their family and we've got a couple of them identified, but apart, apart from that, um, there's nothing there, there's no... There was just nothing to go on, basically. And the time and frame was longer, yeah. too. I mean, yeah. Whereas and they didn't... They didn't have a face, and it wasn't on dry land, which, you know, which presented a threat to everyone else. You know, a, a body floating in a river doesn't necessarily um, cause panic among the you know citizenry. Could have come from anywhere. And four I, four bodies in in um, over a span of a couple years is a lot different than five bodies um, in a single neighborhood in in a matter of months. Correct. For the press, anyway, to attach themselves. Yeah, it definitely wasn't the fear about them because people thought those people thought that there were crimes committed by uh, people who'd known the other person, uh, things like that. And there wasn't the fear. There wasn't the stranger fear. There wasn't the hype and sensation attached to them. Okay, Robert, do you have any last? Um comments or questions? I'm sure, you know, we, we know of your research into the Thames Torso murders, uh, Debs, but I, I know you're also interested in many other aspects of the cases. Is, is there any other things you're uh, researching and working on right now that you want to talk about with us? Um, there's a few things I'm looking at at the moment. Um, I'm doing some uh, work with um, someone else, uh, I won't name them at this point, um, into Rose Milo. Um which is, I think, another interesting case. And, um, yes, she was bombed, yeah. actually. <laughs> she was found um, strangled in Poplar. In At the end of 1888, right? In December of... December 1888. Right. Is, okay, is that it then, guys? Um, that makes it about an hour. Um, Deborah Arif, we really appreciate you being on. This is a fascinating subject and um, one that um, we should talk more of. Um, it's um, the, the brutality that were visited upon these women. Um, you know, is it, just incredible. Um, and in a lot of a lot of cases, I think it, this uh, is a more gruesome um, murder case than the Jack the Ripper murders. Um, so we really want to thank you for um, devoting your attention to this case and um, being on to share all of your knowledge and stuff about it. And it's been a pleasure. Well, thank you. Um, you've been listening to Rippercast. This was episode 10. He is not dead but liveth about the Thames Torso murders. And um, we're a weekly broadcast that you can get at www.rippernet.com. And um, we were joined today by Deborah Arif in Huddersfield in the UK. 
Howard Brown in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Mike Covell in Hull in the UK, and Robert McLaughlin in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And again, I want to thank Deborah Arif for being our guest today. It was a fascinating show. And thanks everyone else, of course, for being here today. And we'll see you next week.